A recent New York Times profile of today's speaker began with the following sentence. James M. McPherson probably knows more about the Civil War than anyone who was actually there. (laughs) And I think those of you who have read his books, and there are a lot of them to read, will agree. But even more impressive, I think, than his omniscient mastery of the facts is his mastery of words. The Civil War has often been called an American Iliad, and in fact, Dr. McPherson's prose, with its clarity and economy, its epic scope, relieved by small-scale moments of human experience, has quite a bit in common with Homer's poetry. By some estimates, the number of books about the Civil War published since 1865 is approximately equal to the number of soldiers at the first battle of Bull Run. And that includes both Union and Confederate, by the way. Um, On this crowded field, Dr. McPherson's book, Battle Cry of Freedom, stands out as the best single-volume history of the war ever written. Since its publication in, in 1988, for which Dr. McPherson was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, the book has sold more than 600,000 copies. Uh, Also, his other books include one that's especially relevant to today's talk, which is uh, Crossroads of Freedom and Tedum. Did you mean to rhyme that, by the way, when you were at the... (laughs) I like that. He's twice been awarded the Lincoln Prize, most recently last year, for Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief. And I'd also mention that his co-recipient of last year's Lincoln Prize, Craig Simons, is here with us today as well, we're honored to say. Dr. McPherson has had an, an outstanding teaching career at Princeton and has also been a leader in efforts to save Civil War battlefield sites, as well as a participant in public conversations about the war's continuing legacy, including the current one that was so thoughtfully initiated by the governor of Virginia. In fact, ever since his first book appeared in 1964, uh, just as America was embroiled in an epic struggle about race, freedom, and civil rights, one of the hallmarks of Dr. McPherson's work has been its attention to the Civil War, not just as a series of military campaigns in which generals sent his cavalry over which hill, but as a social, cultural, and political revolution, the second American revolution, as he's called it more than once. Just one final quick note, Dr. McPherson will be taking some questions and giving some answers at the end of his presentation. And now it's my distinct honor to welcome him here. Well, thank you, Adam, for that overly generous introduction, and thanks to all of you for your welcome. On uh, September, so we get the first one here. On September nineteenth, eighteen sixty-two, two days after the Battle of Antietam, fought near Sharpsburg, Maryland, about sixty-five miles northwest of here, two photographers arrived on the battlefield from the Washington gallery of the famous Matthew Brady, the foremost American entrepreneur of the new science and art of photography. 
The two cameramen were Alexander Gardner and James Gibson. Unfortunately, not Timothy O'Sullivan. He uh, was with Gardner at Gettysburg and took some very famous and, and starkly uh, powerful photographs there. But at Antietam, Gardner's sidekick was James Gibson. They were both already experienced photographers of soldiers, artillery emplacements, camp scenes, and other Civil War subjects. These two men would form a partnership and open their own gallery with O'Sullivan the following year. And then both Gardner and Gibson, as well as O'Sullivan, would go on to have distinguished careers as photographers in the years after the war. But nothing they did in future years would have the public impact of the pictures they exposed on that September 19th. Most of them by Gardner, including the three or four, actually, on the screen here. This one, this one, this one, and an alternative scene of the last one right here. I'll, be, I'll talk more about these in a moment. Never before had soldiers killed in battle, been photographed. Never before had the general public witnessed the horrors of the battlefield in such a stark, realistic portrayal. In mid-October 1862, a month after the battle, an exhibit of about 30 of Gardner's and Gibson's photographs, titled The Dead of Antietam, opened at Matthew Brady's gallery in New York City. All but one of these pictures in that exhibit showed Confederate dead because by September 19th, two days after the battle, most of the more than 2,000 Union soldiers killed outright in the battle had been interred by northern burial details, while many of the similar number of Confederate dead still remained where they fell, awaiting burial. Even though the hundreds and probably thousands of New Yorkers who saw these pictures were looking mostly at enemy dead, therefore, their reaction of shocked silence testified to the human tragedy depicted by these photographs. A New York Times reporter who reviewed the exhibit wrote, These pictures have a terrible distinctness. Mr. Brady has done something to bring home to us the terrible reality and earnestness of war. If he has not brought bodies and laid them in our dooryards and along streets, he has done something very like it. But there is one side of the picture that the sun does not catch, one phase that has escaped photographic skill. It is the background of widows and orphans, torn from the bosom of their natural protectors by the red, remorseless hand of battle. Homes have been made desolate, and the light of life in thousands of hearts has been quenched forever. All of this desolation, imagination must paint. Broken hearts cannot be photographed. I chose these pictures from the exhibit because they come closest, and especially this one, because they come closest to conveying what the Times reviewer called the red, remorseless hand of battle. This first picture, 
shows soldiers from the 10th Louisiana Volunteer Infantry who were killed along the fence line bordering the Hagerstown Pike in the early morning phase of the battle. This picture was taken about 200 yards south of the famous 30-acre cornfield at Antietam. The Hagerstown Pike is on the far side of the fence, between the two fence lines. You might be able to see the far fence line there to the right. The road that you see here on the left in the main part of the picture is just a farm lane, the D.R. Miller Farm, uh, the owner of the famous cornfield. The second picture shows Confederate dead from an artillery battalion that fought on the high ground near today's visitor center with a Dunker Church, a pacifist sect, by the way, one of the battlefield's most famous landmarks there in the background. This third picture shows some of the Confederate dead, probably from the 14th North Carolina Infantry, in the sunken road which became known as Bloody Lane, where some of the most vicious fighting took place during the midday phase of the battle. And this is another view of Bloody Lane taken from a different camera angle. These pictures these pictures convey visually what many soldiers who fought at Antietam and survived tried to describe in words. One Union officer wrote a letter home that referred to hundreds of dead bodies lying in rows and in piles, looking the picture of all that is sickening, harrowing, horrible. Oh, what a terrible sight. Another Union officer who had been in the thick of the fighting at Bloody Lane described the scene there the next day, similar to what you see here. Uh, In the road, the dead covered the ground. It seemed, as I rode along, that it was the valley of death. I think that in a space of less than ten acres lay the bodies of a thousand dead men and as many wounded. The surgeon of a New Hampshire regiment wrote to his wife, No one can begin to estimate the amount of agony after a great battle. To the feeling man, this war is truly a tragedy. But to the thinking man, it must appear a madness. We win a great victory. The masses rejoice. But if all could see the thousands of poor, suffering, dying men, their rejoicing would turn to weeping. I pray God may stop such infernal work, though perhaps he has sent it upon us for our sins. Great indeed must have been our sins, if such is our punishment." A Massachusetts captain who fought at Antietam was also troubled to fathom its meaning. That officer was Robert Gould Shaw, famous to us today primarily as colonel of the 54th Massachusetts, the black regiment that is the subject of the movie Glory, in the attack on Fort Wagner in South Carolina in July 1863 when Shaw himself was killed. At Antietam, His brigade lost almost 200 men killed and another 450 wounded. And Shaw wrote to his father a few days after the battle, Every battle makes me wish more and more that the war was over. 
It seems almost as if nothing could justify a battle like that of the 17th and the horrors inseparable from it. Like Shaw, many other soldiers who lost friends during this bloodiest single day in all of American history wondered if anything could justify such slaughter. That same question continues to haunt us today. Could anything justify the horrors portrayed by these photographs or described by the soldiers I quoted? Maybe that's a philosophical question or even a theological one as suggested by the New Hampshire surgeon and therefore unanswerable by a mere historian. But we can measure the impact of the battle on the course of the Civil War and on all of American history. Even in 1862, many contemporaries foresaw that this showdown at Sharpsburg might have a decisive impact on the future of the continent. From London, where he followed the American Civil War with close attention, Karl Marx wrote that Antietam has decided the fate of the war. Confederate President Jefferson Davis was reported to feel very low down after the battle because the Confederacy's maximum strength has been mobilized while the enemy is just beginning to put forth his might. Years later, after the war, Major Walter H. Taylor of General Robert E. Lee's wartime staff described the Battle of Sharpsburg as the decisive event of the war. Why did those contemporaries consider Antietam the decisive event of the war? To answer that question, we need to turn the clock back several months. From the capture of Forts Henry and Donelson in February 1862 through the capture of Memphis in June, Union arms had won a string of victories that gave them command of much of the South Atlantic coast, the interior network of the Cumberland, Tennessee, and Mississippi rivers, and the South's largest city and port of New Orleans. Northern forces had consolidated their control of Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, and Western Virginia, soon to become the new state of, uh, of West Virginia. In Eastern Virginia, the Army of the Potomac, under its charismatic but cautious commander, George B. McClellan, had advanced up the peninsula between the York and James River to within six miles of Richmond. By June 1862, the days of the Confederacy seemed numbered. Confidence abounded in the North that the war was virtually won. In March 1862, the exuberant editor of the New York Herald declared that we may now count on the final collapse of the vagrant government of Jeff Davis before the 1st of May. Even the usually restrained New York Times, then as well as now, predicted as early as February, it will not be long ere this huge and infernal revolt shall be crushed out. The rebels themselves are panic-stricken, gloated the editor Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune. Indeed, many rebels were. The enemy have shown a daring that has taken us by surprise, admitted the Richmond Enquirer, a kind of semi-official organ of Jefferson Davis's administration. The Richmond Dispatch, with the Confederacy's largest circulation, lamented in March 1862, we have nothing but disaster. The outspoken editor of the Richmond Examiner agreed that the Confederacy had never known an hour of deeper gloom 
or greater peril. Even the irrepressible fire-eater Edmund Ruffin, who claimed to have fired the first shot at Fort Sumter, wrote in his diary that the fall of New Orleans has depressed my spirits more than all the previous losses to our arms and cause. I cannot help admitting the possibility of the subjugation of the southern states. As the Army of the Potomac closed in on Richmond in May 1862, panic seized the Confederate capital. Members of the recently adjourned Confederate Congress decamped for home with what newspapers branded unseemly haste. The Confederate Secretary of War boxed up his department's archives for shipment, if necessary. The Secretary of the Treasury and the gov- had the government's gold reserves ready for evacuation. Visiting Jefferson Davis's household during these tense days was his niece, who wrote to her mother in Mississippi on May 7th, Oh, mother, Uncle Jeff is miserable. Our reverses distressed him so much. The cause of the Confederacy looks drooping and sinking. I am ready to sink with despair. Davis sent his family to North Carolina, and cabinet members followed suit. Rumors circulated that Richmond would be abandoned to the enemy. No one, scarcely, supposes that Richmond will be defended, wrote the War Department clerk John Jones in his to-be-famous, eventually, diary. These events, these Union victories in the early months of 1862, had important consequences abroad. Like the secessionists of 1776, those of 1861 counted on foreign recognition and assistance to help help them win their independence. The Confederacy's principal foreign policy goal in 1862 was diplomatic recognition of its government by European powers. In February 1862, the Confederate States of America had celebrated one year of de facto existence, which had convinced many officials in Europe, that, uh, especially Britain and France, that the Confederacy had earned de jure recognition. But the military reverses of the next four months stemmed that tide toward foreign recognition. From London, the Confederate envoy James Mason conceded that the news of Forts Henry and Donelson had an unfortunate effect on our friends here. The American minister in Britain, Charles Francis Adams, informed Secretary of State William H. Seward in March 1862 that as a result of northern victories, the pressure for interference here has disappeared. By April, even Emperor Napoleon III of France, the Confederacy's most enthusiastic supporter in Europe, had turned cautious. From Paris, the American minister, William Dayton, wrote, The change in the condition of affairs at home has produced a change, if possible, more striking abroad. There is little more said just now as to the propriety of an early recognition of the South. At home and abroad, therefore, prospects for the Confederacy seemed bleak in the spring of 1862. Our cause is hopeless, wrote a Virginia cavalry officer at the end of April. But then he added a phrase, unless some change takes place. Well, great changes soon did take place that turned the fortunes of war around by 180 degrees. 
This reversal of momentum began in the Shenandoah Valley, where Stonewall Jackson's small army outmarched and outfought several Union divisions that could never quite combine against Jackson. These victories in the valley from May 8th to June 9th dramatically boosted southern morale. Meanwhile, on June 1st, after the indecisive Battle of Seven Pines just east of Richmond, Robert E. Lee replaced the wounded Joseph E. Johnston in command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Two weeks later, General Braxton Bragg took command of the Confederacy's second army, which became the Army of Tennessee, and began planning a campaign not only to reclaim its namesake state, Tennessee, but also to conquer Kentucky for the Confederacy. Lee moved first, launching a counteroffensive against McClellan on June 26th that drove the Army of the Potomac away from Richmond in a series of bloody engagements that became known as the Seven Days Battles. By the 4th of July, instead of marching triumphantly into Richmond as northern newspapers had confidently predicted just a few weeks earlier, the Army of the Potomac was gloomily licking its wounds at Harrison's Landing on the James River. The Seven Days Battles lifted southern morale almost to a state of euphoria. On the 4th of July, the Richmond Inquirer declared that the almost funereal pall which has hung around our country since the fall of Fort Donelson seems at last to be passing away. The Richmond Dispatch proclaimed that history has no record of such a succession of triumphs. Throughout all time, they will stand without parallel in the annals of warfare. The War Department clerk, John, the War Department clerk John Jones, whom I quoted in the depressing statement a few moments ago, commented now, optimistically, Lee has turned the tide, and I shall not be surprised if we have a long career of successes. The plunge of northern morale after the seven days was all the greater because of expectations built on almost uninterrupted success over the previous four months had been so high. A panic on Wall Street in July sent stocks as well as the value of the new greenback dollar into a temporary free fall. Northern newspaper editorials contained such phrases as entirely unexpected, exceedingly discouraging and gloomy, disappointed and mortified, stunning disaster. In Washington, a State Department official said that the 4th of July was the gloomiest since the birth of this republic. Never was the country so low and after such sacrifices of blood, of time, and of money. President Lincoln told a Connecticut congressman in mid-July that when he learned of the retreat to Harrison's Landing, I was as nearly inconsolable as I could be and live. A week later, Lincoln had recovered some of his spirits. He informed his cabinet of a decision that would turn out to be one of the most momentous of the war. Southern states had seceded and formed their slaveholding nation to protect their peculiar institution. Slaves constituted the principal labor force that sustained the Southern economy and the Confederate war effort. From the onset of the war, a growing number of Republicans in the North had urged a policy of emancipation to strike a blow against this keystone of Southern society and economy. For a year, Lincoln had deflected this pressure 
Fearing that an emancipation policy would drive the border slave states into the Confederacy and alienate Northern Democrats from support of the war. But by July 1862, Lincoln had decided that these risks were more than balanced by the potential benefits of an edict that would convert black labor from a Confederate asset to a Union asset. Emancipation, Lincoln told the cabinet, was a military necessity, absolutely essential to the preservation of the Union. The slaves are undeniably an element of strength to those who have their service, and we must decide whether that element shall be for us or against us. The North, Lincoln went on, wants the army to strike more vigorous blows. The administration must set an example and strike at the heart of the rebellion, slavery. Most cabinet members supported this decision, but with varying degrees of enthusiasm or lack of it. Seward advised against issuing the proclamation during this period of discouragement with the military situation. Wait, Seward said, until you can give it to the country supported by military success. Otherwise, the world might view it as the last measure of an exhausted government, a cry for help, our last shriek on the retreat. Lincoln accepted this advice and put the proclamation away in a drawer to wait for a military victory. It would prove to be a long, dismal wait. One of the most alarming features of this waiting period, from the northern perspective, was the impact of the seven days in Europe. These battles revived European interest in recognizing the Confederacy. Emperor Napoleon urged Britain to consider a joint offer of mediation to end the war on the basis of Confederate independence. On July 19th, Prime Minister Viscount Palmerston headed off a motion in the British Parliament for recognition of the Confederacy only by persuading the members to trust the cabinet to act when the time was right, which he hinted might be soon. Even pro-Union Englishmen seemed to have given up hope. Richard Cobden, an MP who was very friendly to the United States, wrote to Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts in July that there is an all but unanimous belief in England that you cannot subject the South to the Union. Even they who are your partisans and advocates cannot see their way to any such issue. One of the staunchest friends of the Union in France, in France, Count Agenor Etienne de Gasperin wrote to Lincoln that only a resumption of northern military victories could stem the tide toward European recognition of the Confederacy. Lincoln's reply reflected the frustration he was feeling during the first week of August, 1862. It seems unreasonable that a series of successes, he wrote in reference to those earlier Union victories, a series of successes extending through half a year and clearing more than 100,000 square miles of country should help us so little, while a single half-defeat, that was his description of the Seven Days Battles, while a single half-defeat should hurt us so much. Unreasonable may it may have been, but it was a fact. And worse was yet to come. In August, Confederate armies in Tennessee launched a two-pronged invasion of Kentucky, in Virginia, Lincoln and his new general-in-chief, Henry W. Halleck, decided over McClellan's bitter protests 
to withdraw the Army of the Potomac from the peninsula southeast of Richmond in order to reinforce the Army of Virginia in front of Washington, an army recently formed from the various units that Stonewall Jackson had beaten or outmarched in the Shenandoah Valley. Jackson beat part of that army again near Culpeper on August 9th in the Battle of Cedar Mountain. McClellan was slow to carry out his withdrawal from the peninsula. He seemed in no hurry to reinforce the Army of Virginia commanded by his despised rival, John Pope. Lee decided to strike Pope before most of the reinforcements from McClellan could arrive. In a complicated set of maneuvers, he sent Jackson's Corps on a long flanking march to get into Pope's rear, then reunited the army near the Manassas battlefield of the previous year. On August 29th and 30th, Jackson's Corps withstood disjointed attacks by Pope's disparate divisions, and on the 30th, James Longstreet's Corps spearheaded a counterattack that swept the field and won perhaps the most decisive victory in the career of the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee decided to use this triumph as a springboard to invade Maryland in tandem with the Western Confederate Army's invasion of Kentucky. The dual invasions might win these vital border states for the Confederacy, which then could tip the balance in favor of Confederate victory. Equally important, Lee hoped his invasion might tip the scale in favor of the Peace Democrats in the forthcoming northern congressional elections. The present posture of affairs, Lee wrote to Jefferson Davis on September 8th, after his army had crossed the Potomac River into Maryland, The present posture of affairs places it in our power to propose to the Union government the recognition of our independence. Such a proposal coming when it is in our power to inflict injury on our adversary would enable the people of the United States to determine at their coming elections whether they will support those who favor prolongation of the war or those who wish to bring it to a termination. Those who favor prolongation of the war, in Lee's terminology, were, of course, the Republicans, the Lincoln administration. Those who wished to bring it to a termination, as Lee put it, were the Peace Democrats, whom the Republicans considered the dominant element in that party and branded as treasonable copperheads. Peace Democrats insisted that northern armies could never conquer the South and that the government should seek an armistice and peace negotiations. The bleak military situation after Second Manassas, or Second Bull Run, boosted the credibility of such arguments. Northern morale fell to the lowest point of the war so far. Newspapers of various political persuasions agreed that the country is in extreme peril. Disguised as we may, the Union arms have been repeatedly, disgracefully, and decisively beaten. The New York Times reported that many people are asking, of what use are all these terrible sacrifices? Unless there was some change, the Times went on, the Union cause is doomed to a speedy and disastrous overthrow. The prominent New York lawyer, who also kept a famous diary, a diary that became famous, George Templeton Strong, wrote in that diary that the nation is rapidly sinking just now. Disgust with our present government is certainly universal. It was that disgust 
that Northern Democrats and Robert E. Lee counted on to give them control of the House in the 1862 congressional elections. Republicans feared that prospect. After a year and a half of trial, wrote one of them, and a pouring out of blood and treasure and the maiming and death of thousands, we have made no sensible progress in putting down the rebellion, and the people are desirous of some change. Even the normal loss of seats in an off-year election might endanger the Republican majority. And with Confederate invaders in two border states and Lee even threatening Pennsylvania in the fall of 1862, that was hardly a normal year. In mid-September, it appeared certain that the Democrats would win control of the House, which might cripple the Northern War effort. The diplomatic as well as political consequences of Confederate victories were full of promise for the Confederacy. After Second Bull Run, or Manassas, Prime Minister Palmerston seemed ready to interfere in behalf of the Confederacy. The Federals, he wrote, got a very complete smashing. He's writing this letter to Foreign Secretary Lord John Russell on September 14th, just a day or two after the news of Second Bull Run reached England. The Federals got a very complete smashing, and it seems not altogether unlikely that still greater disasters await them, and that even Washington or Baltimore might fall into the hands of the Confederates. If something like that happened, Palmerston went on, would it not be time for us to consider whether England and France might not address the contending parties and recommend an arrangement on the basis of separation? Russell concurred and added that if the Lincoln administration refused such an offer of mediation, we ought ourselves to recognize the southern states as an independent state. The two British leaders, you could say they were the two most powerful men in the world at that time, agreed, however, to hold off until the results of Lee's invasion became clear. If the Federals sustain a great defeat, Palmerston wrote, their cause will be manifestly hopeless, and the iron should be struck while it is hot. If, on the other hand, they should have the best of it, we may wait a while and see what may follow. Lincoln was acutely sensitive to these political and diplomatic dangers posed by Lee's invasion. But the military crisis had to be dealt with first. The Union Army that fought and lost Second Bull Run was an ill-matched amalgam of troops from Pope's Army of Virginia, part of General Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps transferred from North Carolina, and parts of McClellan's Army of the Potomac transferred from the peninsula. McClellan had delayed reinforcing Pope with his two strongest corps and had suggested to Lincoln that they should be used to secure Washington and, as McClellan put it, leave Pope to get out of his scrape by himself. Lincoln was appalled by these words. He considered McClellan's behavior unpardonable. A majority of the cabinet wanted to cashier the general. But Lincoln recognized McClellan's organizational skills and the extraordinary hold he had on the affections of his soldiers. Lincoln also knew that the army was in a mutinous frame of mind toward Pope, blaming him for the beating they had taken at Second Bull Run. The whole army is disgusted, wrote a New Hampshire captain. 
You need not be surprised if success falls to the rebels with astonishing rapidity. To revive Morrell, Lincoln decided to give McClellan command of all the Union troops in this theater with instructions to meld them into the Army of the Potomac and to go after the enemy. To cabinet members who protested, Lincoln conceded that McClellan has acted badly in this matter, but he has the army with him. We must use what tools we have. There is no man in the army who can lick these troops of ours in shape half as well as he. If he can't fight himself, he excels in making others ready to fight. The memorable response of soldiers to McClellan's restoration to command confirmed Lincoln's judgment. As the general rode out from Washington to meet the tired, demoralized men retreating from the Bull Run battlefield on September 2nd, the word spread like lightning through the ranks that Little Mac was back in charge. From extreme sadness, we passed into twinkling to a delirium of delight, wrote a junior officer. Men threw their caps in the air and danced and frolicked like schoolboys. The effect of this man's presence upon the Army of the Potomac was electrical and too wonderful to make it worthwhile attempting to give a reason for it. McClellan did reorganize the Army and lick it into shape in a remarkably short time. And as they marched out from Washington to seek the enemy, morale rose higher than it had been for the past three months. But McClellan soon reverted to his usual caution, estimating enemy strength at two to three times its actual numbers and moving at a snail's pace of six miles a day, almost as if he was afraid of finding Lee. And as he had done on the peninsula, McClellan clamored for reinforcements, particularly the 12,000-man garrison at Harper's Ferry. General-in-Chief Halleck refused to release those troops to McClellan. That refusal created both a problem and an opportunity for Lee. The garrison at Harper's Ferry threatened his line of supply through the Shenandoah Valley. So on September 9th, while the Army of Northern Virginia was in Frederick, Lee drafted Special Orders Number 191 for the dispatch of almost two-thirds of his army in three widely separated columns under the overall command of Jackson, to converge on Harper's Ferry from three directions and capture it. The opportunity here was a large supply of artillery, rifles, ammunition, provisions, shoes, and clothing for his ragged, shoeless, hungry men. The problem, McClellan might get between the separated parts of the army during the three to five days it would take to carry out that operation and destroy the fragments in detail. But Jeb Stewart's cavalry had kept Lee informed of McClellan's slow progress, so the Confederate commander was confident he would have time to reunite the army before confronting the Yankees. McClellan, however, had an extraordinary stroke of luck that upset Lee's plans. When the Army of the Potomac arrived at Frederick on September 13th, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell of the 27th Indiana spotted a bulky envelope in a field east of town. Curious, he picked it up and discovered inside, wrapped around three cigars, a copy of Lee's special orders number 191 that had been lost, apparently, by a careless southern officer. 
Mitchell's eyes grew wider as he read through the orders studded with names that northern soldiers knew all too well. Jackson, Longstreet, Stewart, Hill, in fact, two Hills, and signed by Lee's adjutant by command of General R.E. Lee. Mitchell took the orders to his sergeant, and together they went to their captain, who sent them on to the regiment's colonel, who rushed the orders to division headquarters, and then on to McClellan himself. These orders, which McClellan's, uh, which uh, the, the 12th Corps' um, adjutant uh, confirmed were authentic because he recognized the handwriting, gave McClellan a picture of the division of Lee's army into four parts, each part several miles from any other, while the most widely separated units were 30 miles apart with the Potomac River between them. No Civil War general ever had a better chance to destroy an enemy army in detail before it could reunite. At noon on September 13th, McClellan sent a telegram to Lincoln. I think Lee has made a gross mistake and that he will be severely punished for it. I have the plans of the rebels and will catch them in their own trap. But McClellan was determined to be careful. No rashness. After all, in his mind, the enemy still outnumbered him. Thus, he must move cautiously. Six hours passed while McClellan tried to confirm some of the information in those orders. Six hours passed before McClellan issued his first orders to the commanders who were to march to the South Mountain Gaps and attack the divided enemy. And when were they to march? Immediately? No. Tomorrow morning would do. Now, one can readily imagine what would have happened if the situation had been reversed and Lee had discovered that McClellan's army was divided into several parts too distant from each other for mutual support. I think he would have had Jackson on the march within the hour and Longstreet right behind him. But the first Union troops did not move until 18 hours after McClellan had seen Lee's orders and sent that telegram to Lincoln. And that was all the margin that Lee needed to avert an even greater disaster. The next four days, September 14th through 17th, passed in a kaleidoscopic pattern of marching in combat. On September 14th, desperate fighting by outnumbered Confederates at Fox's, Turner's, and Crampton's Gaps in South Mountain, a dozen miles west of Frederick, prevented a Union breakthrough until that night. But Lee recognized the danger of that breakthrough and issued orders for all units to retreat across the Potomac to Virginia, give up the campaign. But when he received word next morning, September 15th, that Jackson expected to capture Harper's Ferry that day, which he did, Lee changed his mind and decided to stay in Maryland to continue his campaign. Lee ordered all parts of his army to concentrate at Sharpsburg, where a line of ridges ran through the rural landscape of pastures, crop fields, and woodlots from the Potomac River, three miles north of the village, to Antietam Creek, a mile and a half southeast of it. Both flanks then anchored on water. We will make our stand on these hills, Lee was reported to have said. It was a good defensive position, but it did have one disadvantage. The only route of retreat was a single ford over the Potomac, three miles to the rear. But Lee was willing to take that risk 
to salvage his campaign, confident that when reunited, his veterans would wrest victory from the federal jaws. McClellan and the vanguard of his army arrived on the east side of the Antietam, of Antietam Creek, during the afternoon of September 15th. McClellan sent no cavalry reconnaissance or probing attacks across the stream. He also let most of September 16th slip by without action while he studied the situation and while most of Lee's army arrived to take up defensive positions. In late afternoon of the 16th, two Union Corps crossed the Antietam northeast of the Confederate position. Part of them got into a noisy firefight with the Confederate left, telegraphing McClellan's intention to attack that flank at first light on September 17th. That's exactly what happened. Inaugurating 12 hours of the war's most intense combat that produced some 23,000 casualties, more than 6,000 of them killed or mortally wounded, many of whom you see right there. McClellan's after-action report said that his plan was to attack the Confederate left, follow it up with an attack against the right flank of the Confederates on the Antietam, and when Lee weakened his center to defend these flanks, to assault the center with his, that is, McClellan's reserves. It was a good plan and might have worked if McClellan had actually carried it out. But the various attacks came seriatim, one corps at a time, enabling, enabling Lee to shift his troops from one flank to the other to shore up threatened positions. On two occasions in early and late afternoon, Union attacks on the enemy center and right, the center being the Bloody Lane area that you saw. Oh, I'm going the wrong way there. Oh, keep going. Right there. Sorry about that. But you can still we'll go on to the, the main picture. On two occasions in the early and late afternoon, Union tanks on the enemy center at Bloody Lane and the right, uh, down near famous Burnside's Bridge, and Gardner took a lot of pictures of that, by the way, too. Uh, these attacks achieved potential breakthroughs. But McClellan, believing that the Confederates outnumbered him, there we go. All right, back to full size. But McClellan, believing that the Confederates outnumbered him and that Lee was holding back large reserves, which existed only in McClellan's mind, refused to commit his own reserves. Never during that long day of carnage did as many as 20,000 Union troops go into action simultaneously, and almost 20,000 of them never fired a shot at all. This failure did much to neutralize McClellan's actual two-to-one numerical superiority. That is, he had about 75 to 80,000 men to Lee's 35 to 40,000 at that battle. The Army of Northern Virginia held on by its fingernails during those bloody hours of fighting in places that the battle made famous. For those of you who have been there, you recognize all of these places, the East Woods, the West Woods, the Cornfield, the Dunkard Church, Bloody Lane, Burnside's Bridge. 
After a night of horror, when many wounded died in the no-man's land between the lines, the morning of September 18th dawned with the Confederates still standing defiantly in place. Despite receiving reinforcements during the day, McClellan did not renew the attack. That night, the Army of Northern Virginia retreated across the Potomac, leaving behind most of its dead. Except for a feeble pursuit on the 19th and 20th that was easily repulsed, the Battle of Antietam was over. McClellan missed several opportunities to win a more decisive victory. But by compelling Lee to retreat without achieving most of his objectives in Maryland, the Army of the Potomac could claim at least a limited victory. The northern press puffed it up into a great triumph, all the more heartening because of the pessimism that had preceded it. At no time since the war commenced did the cause of the Union look more dark and despairing than one week ago, declared the New York Sunday Mercury on September 21st. But now, it went on, at no time since the first gun was fired have the hopes of the nation seemed in such a fair way of realization as they do today. The New York Times proclaimed that the effects of this great victory, large print headline, would be felt in the destinies of the nation for centuries to come. The Times was right about the long-term consequences of Antietam. Five days after the battle, Lincoln called a special meeting of his cabinet. I think the time has come, he told them. I wish it was a better time. The action of the army against the rebels has not been quite what I should have best liked. But they have been driven out of Maryland. Lincoln said he had made a promise to myself and to my maker that if God gave us the victory in the approaching battle, I would consider it an indication of divine will in favor of emancipation. The victory at Antietam was God's sign, Lincoln said, that he had decided this question in favor of the slaves. Therefore, said the president, he would issue that day the proclamation warning Confederate states that unless they returned to the Union by January 1st, 1863, their slaves shall be then, thenceforward and forever free. Perhaps no result of Antietam was more momentous than that one. But there were others almost as important. Those congressional elections still loomed. In every midterm election of the previous 20 years, the party in power had lost control of the House. Everyone, every midterm election for 20 years going back to 1842. Until Antietam, that dire prospect seemed likely this time as well, with unfathomable consequences for the government's ability to carry on the war. But now, commented the New York Times after Antietam, our armies have achieved brilliant victories that reinvigorated northern morale and the determination to see the war through to a final victory. Although Democrats did make significant gains in the election, Republicans maintained control of the House. However, a shift of an average of 1% of the votes to Democrats in 16 Republican-held districts in nine states would have given the Democrats control of the House. 
and there can be little if any doubt that a Confederate victory at Antietam and or the continued presence, continued presence of the Army of Northern Virginia in Maryland or Pennsylvania would have swayed that tiny percentage of voters and more. Antietam also had a signal impact abroad. When news of Lee's retreat arrived in London, Prime Minister Palmerston backed away from the idea of intervention. The only favorable condition for mediation would have been, Palmerston wrote, the great success of the South against the North. That state of things seemed 10 days ago to be approaching, but at Antietam its advance has been lately checked, making the whole matter full of difficulty. Further news, a few weeks later, of the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky, which forced the Confederates to abandon their invasion of Kentucky, was just frosting on the cake. I am therefore inclined, wrote Palmerston, to change the opinion I wrote you when the Confederates seemed to be carrying all before them, and I am convinced that we must continue merely to be lookers-on till the war shall have taken a more decided turn. It never did take a decided enough turn toward Confederate victory, at any rate, for Palmerston. Never again did the Confederacy come so close to obtaining European recognition as it did in September 1862. Well, to sum up, no other campaign and battle in the war had such momentous multiple consequences as Antietam, and to a much lesser extent, Perryville. Union armies had stymied the supreme Confederate efforts. Foreign powers backed away from intervention. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Northern voters did not overthrow the Republican Party, which forged ahead with its program to preserve the Union and give it a new birth of freedom. The war had other crucial turning points, In July 1863, the dual Union triumphs at Gettysburg and Vicksburg struck another blow that blunted a renewed Confederate offensive in the East and cut off the western third of the Confederacy from the remainder. In September 1864, Sherman's capture of Atlanta reversed another decline in northern morale and set the stage for the final drive to Union victory. Those also were pivotal moments, but they might never have happened if the Confederate offensives in Kentucky and especially in Maryland had not been defeated in the fall of 1862. In retrospect, contemporaries recognized Antietam as the preeminent turning point of the war. Two of the war's best corps commanders who fought against each other at Antietam and several other battles, Winfield Scott Hancock for the United States and James Longstreet for the Confederate States, made precisely that point. In 1865, Hancock looked back on the past four years and concluded, the Battle of Antietam was the heaviest disappointment the rebels had met with. They then felt certain of success and felt that they should carry the war so far into the northern states that the recognition of the Confederacy would have been a necessity. And 20 years later, Longstreet wrote simply, at Sharpsburg was sprung the keystone of the arch upon which the Confederate cause rested. Those New Yorkers 
who saw the exhibit of the dead of Antietam at Brady's Gallery in October 1862 could not then know it. But if they too subsequently look back on the experience a few years later with the knowledge that Union victory in the war had preserved the United States as one nation, indivisible, and had abolished the curse of slavery, and that Antietam was a decisive event in that accomplishment, perhaps they would have concluded that this was worth it after all. Well, I'll be glad to try to answer your questions. I believe there are uh, microphones that can come around, so go ahead and I'll do my best. Just raise your hand and uh, my, and a microphone will come your way quickly. Right here, down here. Do you think that if Lee had stood his ground instead of retreating, that Antietam would have turned out differently aside from lasting an extra day and being bloodier even than it turned out to be? Um, everybody hear the question? If Lee had stood his ground, uh, what might have been the likely outcome of Antietam? Well, with McClellan in command of the Union Army, one can never know for sure about things like that. Uh, At 8 o'clock in the morning of September 18th, when McClellan discovered that Lee still was standing his ground that day, uh, McClellan sent a telegram to Washington, to General-in-Chief Halleck, saying, uh, I expect the battle to be renewed today. Well, if Halleck um, was reading carefully, he would have noticed the passive voice. Uh, McClellan didn't say, I expect to renew the attack today. I expect the battle to be renewed today. But it wasn't. Both sides uh, remained staring at each other but did not uh, renew the battle. Um, McClellan got some reinforcements. Lee got some reinforcements from stragglers that returned. There had been a real problem with straggling in the Army of Northern Virginia in that campaign. Um, But if McClellan had attacked aggressively, I think, on September 18th, uh, he could have won a more decisive victory. And in fact, a lot of officers, including very pro-McClellan officers and and enlisted men in the ranks, expected the battle. And... and, um, were kind of shocked when when nothing happened on the on the 18th, and uh, I think uh, that was the beginning of a kind of decline in the um, in in the kind of reverence that almost uh, so many Union soldiers had for McClellan. Uh, they realized that they had lost an opportunity here, um, and I think that uh, with an aggressive commander, let's say with a Phil Sheridan of vintage 1864 in command. Uh, there certainly would have been a renewal of the attack, and there probably would have been a much more decisive Confederate defeat. Um, A a lot of uh, Confederate officers were shocked that Lee decided to stay one more day, Uh, and they expected to retreat that night after the battle. Uh, But but Lee was the kind of guy, Lee was a gambler, and uh, he he still hoped to keep that campaign going. He may have thought that McClellan would do the retreating. 
Um, but that night, uh, when as more and more reports came in of just how much the Confederate, Confederate Army had, had uh, suffered in, in the battle, Lee decided um, that he better get out, so he retreated in one night. Has uh, the original of Special Order 191 survived? Yeah, yes, it has. Uh, it's in the uh, archives, um, the, the, the one that was lost, yes, and found. Yes, it, it has. In fact, there's a, I, I recently read a paper. Uh, I'll share this with you. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about the validity. Of, uh, a paper submitted for publication in, in um, a journal uh, that argues that Lee deliberately, th- that it was a plant, the lost order was a plant, um, intended to mislead McClellan about uh, where Lee's strengths were. This argument is very weak because it didn't, it really didn't distort the situation. Um, and there's a whole series of, uh, of uh, arguments in this paper, some of them actually making some, uh, some good points, but others, I think, on the whole, it, it's, it's an unconvincing article, argument. But the author was able to uh, look at the, look at the um, uh, handwriting on the order, because it exists. He actually came to the conclusion that, um, that the handwriting was Jeb Stewart's handwriting, and that Stewart had arranged with a local civilian whom he knew in Frederick um, to plant this order where it would be found as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a way of misleading McClellan. Didn't turn out, you know, it turned out to, um, to help McClellan. He moved much more quickly than he would have otherwise, even though, he's, as I said, he did not move as quickly as one might have expected him to do so. Um, but in any case, there's, there's still some controversy that swirls around these famous lost orders, but it does exist. We've got a couple of people with their hands up back there. Uh, where do we stand on the preservation of the battlefields? I know you've taken an interest in this, uh, especially with the uh, 150th anniversary coming up. Well, a lot has been accomplished uh, in the last 25 years, I think, in battlefield preservation um, since the uh, Conservation Fund under the leadership of Francis Kennedy, who was here today back in the, um, in the 1980s, and the um, Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, uh, which that later merged and became the uh, Civil War Preservation Trust, and other organizations, uh, the Central Virginia Battlefield Trust, have taken up the, the cause of preservation and have pushed it forward in a, in a, um, a successful and, and vigorous way. Uh, there's still all kinds of threats. Everybody's aware of the current controversy over the building of a huge Walmart uh, facility uh, near the um, border of the Wilderness Battlefield in, in Virginia, west of Frederick, uh, Fredericksburg. And, and other threats that, uh, that continue to exist, especially in the Fredericksburg area. But uh, compared to the situation that existed uh, 25 years ago, uh, I think that, uh, that a lot has been accomplished. Um, and there's a, there's a big community. I think the Civil War Preservation Trust has something like 60,000 members. Um, it, it, um, it has really done extraordinary things in the last, especially in the last few years. Are you active in that? 
I, I have been active in that. I'm a member of it. I'm a member of their advisory board. Um, I, I know very well uh, Jim Lighthizer, who is the head of uh, the Civil War Preservation Trust, and I've been involved in it, yeah. Um, uh, hi. Is somebody right there. Oh, excuse me, over here. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> over here. Uh, okay, I, right here. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> I wonder if there were other such... Uh, drastic and dramatic shifts in mood in the first year or the last few years of the war as there were in this sort of few month span of 1862? Yes, there were. Um, you, uh, the, the famous Civil War historian Bell Wiley uh, once constructed a, constructed a graph which he called a fever chart of public opinion and support for the war or opposition to the war uh, in the Confederacy uh, and one could easily construct such a, a, a fever chart uh, for the United States as well. Uh, and as you might expect, when things were going well, uh, optimism of the sort that I quoted here uh, on either side uh, prevailed. And, and there was enthusiasm for the war and support for it, despite the kind of carnage that takes place. Uh, and people thought this carnage was worth it because they were winning. Um, but at times when they were losing, the carnage didn't seem like it was worth it. To just take the uh, North, for, for example, um, I, I quoted the optimism of the spring of 1862 and then the profound pessimism of the summer and early fall. Uh, after uh, Antietam and Perryville, uh, northern opinion rose again, but then it sunk even lower over the winter with failure at Fredericksburg, a failure of Grant's initial campaign against Vicksburg. Uh, things didn't look like they were going very well. Then came the Battle of Chancellorsville. So there was another trough of northern opinion by, let's say, May and June of 1863. But then comes uh, Vicksburg, um, Gettysburg, other Union victories, and it's another 180-degree shift. Southern opinion plums. Um, but that isn't the end of it. Uh, in the spring of 1864... Um, when Grant becomes general-in-chief, makes his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac, and Sherman takes over the second-largest Union army in the Georgia campaign. Uh, there's wild optimism in the North that these two heavy hitters are going to bring the war to an end by the 4th of July. Uh, well, by the 4th of July, uh, enormous casualties, especially in Grant's Virginia campaign, had caused uh, northern morale to plummet again. And by August of 1864, things were so bad uh, that Lincoln and everybody else in the North expected that he would lose uh, the, his, his bid for re-election in 1864 and that the Democrats uh, would, would elect a president on a peace platform, on a platform and negotiating an end to this war. Uh, and I think if the, uh, if the election had been held at the end of August 1864, that's exactly what would have happened. Uh, Northern morale was lower than ever. But then again, almost overnight in this case, with Sherman's capture of Atlanta, and then in September and October, a series of victories by Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley, again, you get this 180-degree mood swing. So this happened over and over again, and you could construct this kind of a fever chart. Public opinion... Uh, was, was extremely sensitive to victory or defeat, and victory with casualties like this was bad enough, but defeat 
um, was really what raised questions, is it worth it? Is it worth 600, well, by the end of the war, 620,000 deaths? Or is it worth even something like this? Uh, yes, beyond the October 1862 New York showing of this image, would you detail the promulgation of, of this image uh, and the other ones you've shown, please? Uh, yes. Um, all of these images, or most of these images, were part of stereopticon uh, photographs. And the same was true of, of Gettysburg as uh, the photographs by Gardner and, and Timothy O'Sullivan. Uh, and of other, there, there were some uh, photographs of other battlefields, Corinth in Mississippi, uh, 2nd Fredericksburg, um, and then later in the war at Petersburg. Uh, a lot of these uh, were sold as, as uh, stereo things, the kind you can stare at and, and get three-dimensional. So they were very widely distributed. Uh, in the latter half of the war. Uh, but this was the first. Uh, October 1862 was the first. And I think the shock value of, 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 of coming uh, out, almost out of the blue like this, uh, probably they had a greater impact than anything that came after, including the Gettysburg photographs. Yes, sir. Does anybody know what happened to those cigars? <laughs> Nobody knows what happened to those cigars. Uh, the the, the uh, corporal from the 27th Indiana didn't get to smoke them, that's for sure. Um, and nobody knows. Yeah. Was there a studio like Brady's and with the work of Gardner and O'Sullivan in the South, or were most of the stereotypes and the things that you're describing in these exhibitions, were those primarily in the North? They were primarily in the North, but there were photographers in the South. Uh, and we do have uh, photographs from the Confederacy, not many. I mean, it's a proportion of 50 to 1 in terms of uh, the, the thousands of photographs that we have from the Civil War in the North, uh, and, and only hundreds, maybe even less than that in the South. But there are some famous photographs, really, really uh, terrible photographs. We could have another lecture based on them. Uh, of Andersonville Prison in the summer of 1864. And they were taken by a southern photographer. And there are others. But it, it's overwhelmingly northern. Uh, the, most of the photographers before the war were in the large northern cities. Um, and uh, the, the war caused so many shortages of everything in the south, including paper, chemicals, and everything else necessary for taking photographs and printing them in those days, uh, that uh, as the war went on, there's, there was even less in, in the South. Right here. Apart from election results, how do you measure public opinion in the North during the Civil War? And was, can you assess what public opinion was at various times in the South? Question, uh, in case you didn't know, here it is. <clears throat> Apart from election results, how do you assess public opinion in the war, um, and, and especially in the South? Uh, primarily through the press. Um, the, uh, the United States was a newspaper reading society. There were hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. Uh, more newspapers by far per capita then than now, maybe even more altogether, although a lot of them were just weeklies. Um, and the press was very, very much, much had its hand on public opinion. 
uh, editorials in these newspapers, letters to the editor, uh, the slant of news stories. Um, Lee, for example, was an avid reader of northern newspapers that were sort of smuggled between the lines. I mean, there was a constant uh, trade in, uh, across uh, between the lines in newspapers. So Lee had access to northern press, and he, he read it religiously to gauge northern opinion. When, he's, when he talks about... Uh, and it, it actually helped determine part of his strategy. One of the reasons he invaded Maryland was uh, to hope to influence the elections in 1862 because he had been reading all these reports in northern papers about the demoralization of the northern on the northern home front uh, so that now we obviously the press can distort things it did then it does today but it it um, it can also be a fairly if you you know if you know what you're doing it can be a pretty good barometer of, of public opinion in a society with, with such a free and vigorous press as, as uh, America in the 1860s, and that included both the South and the North. Again, uh, as the war went on, shortages of paper, even of ink, uh, in the Confederacy caused the papers to get smaller and smaller and some of them to disappear altogether. And, of course, when southern cities like New Orleans or Memphis or Nashville or Norfolk uh, were captured early in the war and occupied by uh, United States forces the rest of the war, their press was no longer f free, um, or it was at least controlled by the occupying force. So it, as the war goes on, it gets harder and harder to read Southern public opinion through the press. But in the North, you can get it. It's a, it was a pretty good barometer. Uh, professor, thank you. You've, you've alluded to this. Was there any attempt by the military to censor these photos? I know when Lincoln was assassinated, there's a famous picture of him that, that Stanton went after. But did they try at all to do anything about these photos? No, th there was really remarkably little censorship. Um, I think uh, most of the censorship that took place by the United States Army was control of the telegraph. Um, Congress gave uh, the president power to seize the railroads or the telegraph for military purposes in legislation that it passed, I think, in February 1862. Lincoln used that power sparingly, but his Secretary of War, Stanton, uh, usually uh, often often denied the. Um, well, he what he what he did was. Um, was reserved the telegraph for military uses, which was in effect denying it to journalists who, for example, after the Battle of Antietam, it's a good example of that, uh, a fairly famous newspaper reporter named Smalley, I'm trying to remember his first name, it may come to me, he actually had served as a volunteer aide to General Hooker during the battle. It was Hooker's troops, by the way, who attacked and, and caused these casualties. Um, and when the battle was over, Smalley uh, hopped a train uh, from Frederick to Baltimore, hoping, well, first at Frederick he tried to use the telegraph, but, but it was being used for military purposes, and he couldn't get through. And then he went to Baltimore hoping to get there, and he couldn't, again, it was controlled. So he rode all night um, and, and uh, in a boxcar, 
uh, to New York, writing out his story of the Battle of Antietam, which was published as a great scoop, or a beat, as they called them in those days, uh, in the New York Tribune on September 20th, the first account, almost a, you know, a small book-length account that he had written through the night on a swaying boxcar, um, because he couldn't use the telegraph. That's the only way you could get the story in. But, in term, uh, but, but there was no censorship of the story itself, and there was no censorship a, a few weeks later of these, of these photographs. Now, most of the photographs, as I said, all but one at Antietam, and all but a very small number of Gettysburg, were of Confederate corpses. If there had been a lot of photographs of Union dead, there might have been some censorship. As you may be aware, there was censorship in World War II uh, till partway through the war, and to some degree all the way through the war, showing dead American soldiers in World War II. Um, but since these, most, most of the photographs you see of dead soldiers and of other destruction, like the uh, destruction in some southern cities, um, Richmond at the end of the war, for example, um, uh, and, and Atlanta, uh, and uh, they were, were taken by northern photographers after the, after, after the occupation of these areas by the northerners. So there wasn't the temptation to censor these pictures that they might have been if it had been showing all that death and destruction on your own side. Right here, somebody? The question is, uh, what accounts for McClellan's, I think to use the word, reticence? I'm not sure that's quite the right word. Uh, and was his, was his training different from others? No, McClellan was a graduate of West Point, just like most of the other top commanders in the war. Um, his class of 1846, he graduated second in his class, very high rank. I think it's McClellan's personality. McClellan, uh, was, afraid to ta- McClellan was afraid of failure. Uh, that meant he was afraid to take risks because if you take risks, you risk failure. I think he had the kind of personality, the kind of psychology that just could not deal with that. Uh, And so he came up with reasons why he could not do things. The enemy always outnumbered him in his mind, never in reality, but always in his mind. He he, He reported after the Battle of Antietam that in that campaign, the Confederates had 110,000 troops. Well, the real number of troops that, that Lee had at the Battle of Antietam after casualties in, at South Mountain and all the straggling that I mentioned was about 37,000. But McClellan in his report said he had 110,000. Well, he's obviously creating a picture in his mind that will explain and, and justify why he cannot do anything or why he could not do certain things. Uh, there are some people who are can-do people, that's their psychology. McClellan was a can't-do person. Uh, that was his psychology. So I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that his education, I mean, his education was pretty much the same as all of his contemporaries who were Army commanders, the same as Grant. Grant was class of 1843. Stonewall Jackson, a risk-taker if there ever was one, graduated in the same class as McClellan, 1846. Um, so I think it has to do with individual personalities. Right here. Is it true that some of the photographs that we see were actually staged, like uh, the, the sharpshooting photographs? 
question is, are some of the photographs we see actually staged? These are not. Uh, but the one you mentioned was, and others at Gettysburg especially. Uh, for those of you who have been to Gettysburg or have seen the photograph, this was um, Timothy O'Sullivan, I think, who did this. Uh, there was a, uh, at, at Devil's Den, there was a sharpshooter's nest with the rocks piled up and uh, well, I can't remember now if it was Gardner or O'Sullivan, but they were together. The photograph shows the dead Confederate soldier with a rifle uh, be- beside him, just behind that barrier, and it said a dead Confederate sharpshooter. Well, that, that was a, a dead Confederate soldier. Uh, he'd been killed in the fighting there, but it was about uh, 50 yards away, and, and the photographers actually picked him up and carried him there uh, to stage that photograph. And there are a few other staged ones from Gettysburg. But so far as I'm aware, um, that didn't happen here at Antietam. Gardner and Gibson, mainly Gardner, most of them are by Gardner, but they worked together, um, just took the pictures of what they saw, uh, where they saw it, no dragging of bodies together. Although, in this case, I think they had lined them up these, they were not all lying together like this. Uh, they were preparing them for burial. And they would bury them in mass graves. Um, so they would, they would drag... These people were probably scattered over, you know, two or three acres. Well, I don't know, not, maybe not that much. Uh, but they had been, they'd been pulled together preparation, in preparation for burial. So to that degree, this photograph, and maybe the, the ones here... Um, are a little bit more grisly than the reality would have been because these bodies had been gathered together for, for burial. But that's really the only manipulation that I'm aware of at Antietam. And it wasn't the photographers who did it here. Uh, it was the burial details. It's right here. Now, you've said that the discovery of Lee's orders was a fortunate accident and that General McClellan was seriously misinformed about the number of troops he was facing. What can you say about the quality of intelligence operations in the campaigns you've been discussing? Uh, I think McClellan's intelligence was terrible. Um, That was because Pinkerton knew what McClellan wanted to hear. Uh, And and Pinkerton Pinkerton was pretty good at um, counterintelligence, but not very good at, at reporting um, accurate intelligence information. Uh, one, once Hooker to, took control of the Army of the Potomac in uh, January 1863, uh, he created what he called a Bureau of Military Intelligence. And he put a, a, a very sharp colonel in charge of it, whose name was George Sharp with an E, uh, and, and Sharp was, really pioneered what uh, today's intelligence community would call all-source intelligence. He had a, a staff. Uh, they would interview uh, prisoners of war, deserters, civilians. They would scour uh, any newspapers they had. They would um, uh, talk to cavalry scouts uh, they would gather all kinds of information from every, any source that they could. 
uh, and, and would analyze that information, digest it, try to filter out what uh, modern intelligence agents call noise, irrelevant or, or inaccurate information. Of course, you don't always know if it's inaccurate. Uh, and then, and then um, write a report to the army commander. And that really served Meade very well in, uh, in the Gettysburg campaign. Meade, of course, took over from Hooker at the last minute. Uh, but he had better intelligence on the, on the uh, Confederate Army in the Gettysburg campaign, both before, during, and after the battle, than any Union commander had had before that time. Uh, and that was a major contribution that Hooker had made to create that Bureau of Military Intelligence. But, but, um, but McClellan had not had that. Another thing, McClellan, I think, was uh, made a very faulty uh, use of his own cavalry. He did not know how to use cavalry. And one of the functions of cavalry in a Civil War context is gathering intelligence. But by 1864, uh, Union commanders were very effective at using cavalry intelligence, especially when Sheridan took over command of of the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, so um, there's there's a there's a quantum leap in the quality of uh, Union intelligence in in um, in, af- in 1863 and after. Okay, well we're wrapping things up then. <laughs> <laughs>